Well, hey there, neighbor. Welcome back to our Dead Sea Scrolls recordings. Have you ever heard a phrase, sometimes used in various memes, there was an attempt? Oh yes, we're going to talk about an attempt. You see, there was an attempt in the Qumran community to try to be like normal people, who when they read the Bible, instead of rewriting it, they do commentaries. Oh, you have a difficulty with a certain verse or a certain question on it? Okay, let's do a commentary. Let's see if Qumran was able to do that, or if it was just the case of another, there was an attempt. Here is from their Genesis commentary. <clears throat> In the 480th year of the life of Noah came their end, that of antediluvian mankind. And God said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, and their days shall be determined to be 120 years. Oh no, there was an attempt. What do we mean by that? Well, let's go ahead and actually open up to the real text of Genesis 6 verse 3. The actual verse here in the NIV says, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. In the NKJV, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now you might be saying, Pastor, you love using the ESV. Why are you not doing that? Well, the ESV unfortunately agrees with the Dead Sea Scrolls, saying, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. I have literally zero clue why the ESV translated it that way when the actual verb used in the Hebrew is yadon, which is striving, contending, to judge or minister judgment, to plead a cause, execute judgment, or quarrel. Strong's number 1777. I don't know why on earth the ESV decided to take a cue from Qumran. It's not in the original manuscripts. And the use of katamene from the Greek in the Septuagint does not really give us an idea of God literally taking his Holy Spirit from mankind entirely after the flood. There was an attempt. This is Qumran trying to be normal for once. But they can't help themselves. They still rewrote a verse in the middle of what should just be a normal commentary. And oh my goodness, do they have agenda after agenda here in that. So let's just go ahead and restart here to read their commentaries. Please assume that any time there is an actual verse from Genesis spoken here, they're going to get it wrong in one way, shape, or form or another. I don't have time to check every single one, but it's a safe assumption. So we restart now with the Genesis commentaries. In the 480th year of the life of Noah came their end, that of antediluvian mankind. And God said, supposed scriptural quote here, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, and their days shall be determined to be 120 years. Genesis 6 verse 3. Until the end of the flood. Next quotation here, in the waters of the flood arrived on the earth in the 600th year of the life of Noah in the second month. Commentary on the first day of the week. Quote, on the 17th of the month, 
On that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. Genesis 7, verses 11 and 12. Commentary. Until the twenty-sixth day of the third month, the fifth day of the week. Next verse. And the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. Chapter 7, verse 24. Until the fourteenth day of the seventh month, the third day of the week. And at the end of a hundred and fifty days, the waters had abated. Commentary, two days, the fourth and the fifth day, and on the sixth day. Okay, what I'm going to do here, just I'll say the verses when they're supposed to crop up. But you can see, as I'm reading it here in the actual Dead Sea Scrolls book, when it's a scriptural quotation, it's in italics. When it's commentary, it's in normal type. But I can't really do this for every single verse because they're interspersing their commentary in the middle of the verses. They're not doing a normal clean commentary here. They're writing it as though you're supposed to just know when they're having a verse being quoted and when they're doing commentary. It's a mess. Again, there was an attempt. Up until this point, I just wanted to show how much of a mess it was because they have a couple words from a verse and then they start doing commentary. Let's just read the rest of this normally and we will do some commentary as we read. The ark came to rest on the mountains of Hurarat or Turarat on the 17th day of the seventh month. It's, it's Ararat. Anyway, uh, chapter 8 verses 3 and 4. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, the first day of the month, the fourth day of the week, and the tops of the mountains appeared. Chapter 8 verse 5. In the end of 40 days, after the tops of the mountains had been seen, Noah opened the window of the ark. Chapter 8 verse 6. On the 10th day of the 11th month, and he sent forth the dove to see if the waters had subsided. Chapter 8 verse 8. But she did not find a resting place and returned to him to the ark. Chapter 8, verse 9. He waited another seven days and again sent her forth. Chapter 8, verse 10. She came back to him with a plucked olive leaf in her beak. Chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. This is the 24th day of the 11th month, the first day of the week. And Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. 8, verse 11. At the end of another seven days, he sent forth the dove and it did not return again. 8, verse 12. This is the first day of the 12th month, the first day of the week. At the end of three weeks, after Noah had sent forth the dove, which did not return to him anymore, the waters dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. 8 verse 13. This was the first day of the first month. And it happened in the 601st year of the life of Noah, on the 17th day of the second month, that the earth was dry. 8 verse 14. On the first day of the week. On that day, Noah went forth from the ark. 8 verse 18. At the end of a full year of 364 days, on the first day of the week, on the 17th of the second month, Vakat on and six Vakat, Noah from the ark, at the appointed time of a full year, Vakat, and Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves shall he be to his brothers. Before we get to this part, I just wanted to mention something. No, Genesis 8 does not specify that a year has 364 days. This is Qumran people unable to help themselves when it comes to their calendar obsession. 
They are insisting that you be reminded of this as you read because they want to remind themselves of, uh, uh, so he waited this amount of time and yeah, 364 days. Just in case anybody forgot, that's the real year. Of course, because you can't just do normal commentaries on here without riding your hobby horse all the way into the sunset. When we get back to this, let's go back a little bit. Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves shall he be to his brothers. Chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. But he did not curse Ham, but his only son. For God had blessed the sons of Noah and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Chapter 9, verse 27. Now what's the point of this? They're trying to explain why God would curse Canaan, Ham's son, and not Ham himself. They're ignorant of the way that old school ancient Near Eastern curses worked, where you curse one generation after the person you want to curse because a curse goes back one. At least that's the way my ancient Near Eastern studies professor had explained it. If Noah had cursed Ham, then the curse would have went back onto Noah and then all of his descendants. But if he curses Canaan, then it just goes back on Ham and all of Ham's descendants, if that makes sense. Qumran doesn't know about this, so instead they're like, well, God blessed his sons, so Noah wasn't willing to curse any of his sons, so he cursed a grandbaby instead. Sure. Okay, I guess that's one way of explaining it. But now we continue. He gave the land to Abram, his beloved. Terah was 145 years old when he went forth from Ur of the Chaldees and came to Haran. Now, Abram was 70 years old, and for five years Abram dwelt in Haran. And afterwards, Abram went forth to the land of Canaan. 65 years, dot, 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 the heifer and the ram and the goat. That's chapter 15, verse 9, dot, 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 the torch of fire when it passed over. That's chapter 15, verse 17, dot, dot, dot. So then it skips. It's very fragmentary. We get to a quick little commentary on Genesis 36, verse 12. Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, son of Esau, and she bore to him Amalek, whom Saul smote as he said to Moses, In the last days you will wipe out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. That's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19. Why would they include this? Well, Amalek had been extinct for a very long time. There are no more Amalekites. Just let me be clear there. There are no Amalekites. But there is very much now, for 2,000 years at least, a distinct urge to say, this group that I don't like equals the Amalekites. So that, that gives me every justification to go ahead and kill off the Amalekites. Now does that fulfill the command of God to wipe the memory of Amalek out from under the heaven? No, because Amalek's dead. All the Amalekites are dead. If you keep calling people the Amalekites, you're not wiping their memory out. They're no longer a footnote in the Bible. You're saying, uh, the spirit of Amalek is on somebody else because I don't like this uh, competitor group. They're Gentiles and I want them to die. Trust me, that is all over the place in various uh, rabbinic pastiches and literature out there where they're like, hmm, we hate the Romans. They're, they're Amalek. We're going we're gonna to kill Amalek. We want them all to die and go extinct. And Rome falls, and then it's like um, Byzantium. They're, they're Amalek. We, we hate Byzantium, so, so we're going to kill them all. <laughs> 
They really want a justification to kill their enemies when God doesn't tell them to. So they go back to a previous commandment, say that that applies to this new group of people that has nothing to do with the Amalekites. And they say, see, God told us to kill them. Done. Easy. Good. It's obviously terrible, terrible, terrible exegesis. It is not real biblical interpretation in the slightest, and it excuses the sin of murder. You're, you're trying to rationalize your murderous impulses towards people that you don't like. And Qumran was very, very much interested in an eschatological murder event where they killed all of the Gentiles and all of the people that they believed were racial traitors to the Hebrews. Qumran was all about this. Of course, they're going to hone in on Amalek. Anyway, we get to the blessings of Jacob here. It skips again, again, very fragmentary, to Genesis 49, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, the first fruit of my strength, preeminent in pride and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. You went up to your father's bed, you have defiled his couch. Its interpretation is that he rebuked him because he slept with Bilhah, his concubine. And he said, my firstborn, dot, dot, dot. Reuben is the first fruit. So they start commenting on this because they want to eventually get to Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from the tribe of Judah. Whenever Israel rules, there shall not fail to be a descendant of David upon the throne. That's Jeremiah 33, verse 17. For the ruler's staff is the covenant of kingship, and the clans of Israel are the divisions until the Messiah of righteousness comes, the branch of David. For to him and his seed is granted the covenant of kingship over his people for everlasting generations, which he is to keep, dot, 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 the law with the men of the community, for, dot, 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 it is the assembly of the men of, dot, dot, dot. Okay, so they start commenting on what Jacob said to Reuben, his firstborn, to move on to their commentary on Judah. Hey, Jacob promised that there would be a ruler from the tribe of Judah for, well, basically forever, until Shiloh, to him whom it belongs. And that, of course, is our Lord Jesus. But in Qumran here, because they do not respect the Hasmonean leaders of Judea at this time, they do not respect the Romans, they don't respect the Greeks, they don't respect anybody as a legitimate leader, they're pointing at this saying, you're not from the line of David, you're not a legitimate ruler. We need a Davidic dynasty again. But, um, by the way, it's not just that, because when the Messiah shows up and we have a Davidic dynasty again, He's got to be with the men of the community, you see. So now they're kind of inserting themselves into Messianic prophecy here. They're saying, uh, yeah, we need a real king. Okay, that's true. The Hasmonean dynasty is not legitimate. Okay, that, that's true. They were not from a Davidic line. And by the way, when we do reestablish this, the, uh, the new leaders, the new king from David's family is going to have to obey all of our rules. Not true. But they're inserting themselves. They can't help it. There was an attempt. So we get to their next uh, commentary here. They go back to Genesis 9, verses 24 and 25. Very, very fragmentary. Which he says, dot, 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 on the doors, and dot, dot, dot. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Cain, and a slave of slaves shall he be to his brothers. They probably had more than one commentary on this. Sorry that it's fragmentary. I wish I could say more. Then on Genesis 49 verses 15 through 17. 
and he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a slave at forced labor. Its interpretation, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels. They don't really give us an interpretation. I think that is because it is very, very fragmentary. Last fragment here on Genesis. On the 17th of the month, dot, 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 Noah went out of the ark at the appointed time year by year, dot, 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 a raven, and it went out and returned it to announce to the last generations, dot, 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 before him, for the raven went out and returned. I don't know why they're saying raven, but that's all the commentaries that they did on Genesis. There is more here. We will get to Isaiah here shortly. The idea is, with their commentaries, their attempt at being normal Bible scholars, what they do is they focus on Noah, then they focus on Jacob. Because with Noah, they get some justification for their calendar, I guess. Then they also get to say, aha, this connects us to the Enochian literature. And then they also get to go to these various curses and everything and go, hmm, well, Ham's not really cursed. It's just Canaan because God blessed Ham. That's our explanation. But that gives us a little bit of breathing room for the stuff we really want to talk about, which is Jacob's blessings to his sons. Uh, yeah, Reuben, you're canceled. Judah. It's from Judah that we're going to have this scepter, and that automatically means Davidic rule 100% forever. And that means nobody is legitimate. And even if we got a Davidic king again, he has to do what we say. See, this isn't Bible commentary so much as this is searching the Bible for justifications of your positions and saying it's Bible commentary. When you do real Bible commentary, what you're supposed to do is go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, or passage by passage, and interpret it. Talk about it. Go through what the text actually says. In Genesis here, in their Genesis commentaries, all Qumran is doing is hunting for justifications for what they already believed. They're going fishing. That's basically what it is. They're going through the Bible fishing for justifications to demonstrate how correct they are, you see. Because they're right, you see. And they have all truth because, like, all their gods and stuff told them. Again, there was an attempt. But maybe I'm being uncharitable. Maybe this is a one-time thing that they're doing a fishing exercise to get what they want out of the Bible rather than following what the Bible says. Let's go to their commentaries on Isaiah and see if that's the case. So it's fragmentary, but we, we get a good picture of it here. When they returned from the desert of the peoples, dot, 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 the prince of the congregation and afterwards, dot, 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 will depart from them. He has come to Ayath. He has passed through Megron. At Michmash, he has left his baggage. They have passed by Mayabarah. Geba is their night camp. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Bathgalim, cry out a shrill note. Laish, hear it, answer her. Anathoth, Madmanah flees. The inhabitants of Gehim take refuge. Today he is to stop in Nob. He shakes his hand toward the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hills of Jerusalem. That's from Isaiah chapter 10, verses 28 through 32. And that keeps going. The interpretation of the decree concerns the coming end of days. Dot, 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 trembles when he ascends from the vale of Akko to wage war against. Dot, 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 and none is like him and in all the cities of. Dot, 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 and as far as the frontier of Jerusalem. Now, why is that incorrect? 
First off, it says here, the prince of the congregation. So not only are they inserting themselves into this text saying, see, this prophecy applies to us. But in addition to that, if you actually read Isaiah chapter 10, we see here in verse 24, My people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you as Egypt did. Very soon my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. The Lord Almighty will lash them with a whip as when he struck down Midian at the rock of Oreb, and he will raise his staff over the waters as he did in Egypt. In that day their burden will be lifted from your shoulders, their yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because you have grown so fat. And then verses 28 through 32 involve they pronouns, a plural of people, not a singular as Qumran has rewritten it. So this is like those weird Patriot websites, like the Patriot Baptist group that says like, let's find George Washington in the Bible. Let's find George Washington in prophecy. That sort of thing. They're trying to do that. But remember, Qumran famously had a complete copy of Isaiah in their possession. They knew what Isaiah said. So they just took four verses here took him out of context, ignored the immediate context where Isaiah just tells us this is about Assyria, which had been long gone by the time Qumran was around. And they said, oh yeah, this is about Messiah and also the prince of the congregation here, our guy that's leading it. And uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to do a heckin' war here and we're going to kill all of our enemies who are <laughs> clearly a one-for-one -one comparison to the Assyrians because we don't like them, you see. Okay, there was an attempt. Get to the next fragment here. <laughs> and the tallest trees shall be cut down, and lofty shall be felled with the axe, and Lebanon through a powerful one shall fall. That's chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Its interpretation concerns the Ketim, who shall crush the house of Israel and the humble, dot, 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 all the nations and the valiant shall be dismayed and their hearts shall melt. In that which he said, the tallest trees shall be cut down. These are the valiant of the Kittim, dot, dot, dot. In that which he said, the heart of the forest shall be felled with the axe. They, dot, 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 for the war of the Kittim. And Lebanon through a powerful one shall fall. Its interpretation concerns the Kittim who will be given into the hand of his great one when he flees from before Israel, Vakat. Oh no, like I predicted, like I said, they're saying that the Assyrians are these Kittim guys that they hate. The Greco-Romans, the Gentiles. What they're trying to do is say, yeah, so you know how Amalek is a code word for our enemy that we want to kill, that we want to have some rationalization or justification for our murderous impulses? Guess what? Amalek is also Assyria when it comes to our enemies. Because that means that God has promised that these people we hate are going to die. So not only are we allowed to kill them, God has to give us the victory. We tell God what to do because we tell him what his prophecy means. <laughs> so we uh, keep reading here. 
And there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or pass sentence by what his ears hear. He shall judge the poor righteously, and shall pass sentence justly on the humble of the earth. That's Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3. A few words are different, but we can overlook that. Interpreted, this concerns the branch of David who shall arise at the end of days. God will uphold him with the spirit of might and will give him a throne of glory and a crown of holiness and many colored garments. He will put a scepter in his hand and he shall rule over all the nations. And Magog and his sword shall judge all the peoples. And as for that which he said he shall not judge by what his eyes see or pass sentence by what his ears hear, interpreted, this means that the priest, dot, 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 as they teach him, so will he judge, and as they order, so will he pass sentence. One of the priests of renown shall go out, and garments of, dot, 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 shall be in his hands, dot, dot, dot. This gets into a little bit of the dual messiah theory. There was a theory for a while that there would be a Levite messiah in addition to a uh, messiah from the tribe of Judah. You have a royal messiah and a priestly messiah. And again, this is not even closely related to the stuff that they've been saying. And I like how they bring up Magog here. You remember back in the 80s, there was this feeling that Russia was Gog or Magog? Like, that was the thing. This had to be Russia. Like, we can't judge Qumran too, too much here for trying to mangle prophecy for their own ends. American churches have been doing that for decades now. We're just as guilty, because we were trying to copy and paste any prophecy we could to find the end times where we wanted it, and of course our enemies were the bad guys every single time. So next fragment here, though, in uh, their Isaiah commentary, this goes into chapter 5 of Isaiah. For ten acres of vineyard shall produce only one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Chapter 5, verse 10. Interpreted, this saying concerns the last days, the devastation of the land by sword and famine. At the time of the visitation of the land, there shall be... Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after strong drink, to those who linger in the evening until wine inflames them. They have zither and harp and timbrel and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the work of the Lord or see the deeds of his hand. Therefore my people go into exile for want of knowledge, and their noblemen die of hunger, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore hell has widened its gullet and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude Go down, her tumult, and he who rejoices in her, verses 11 through 14. Uh, they did exchange the word death for hell here, but it is interesting that they say, oh, this is about the last days. This is totally not Isaiah talking about the exile that was just about to happen to the northern kingdom of Israel in Isaiah's day. Oh, no, of course not. This has to be last day stuff. But for whom? Who is this talking about? We read the rest of the fragment. These are the scoffers in Jerusalem who have despised the law of the Lord and scorned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people. 
He stretched out his hand against them and smote them. The mountains trembled, and their corpses were like sweepings in the middle of the streets. And his wrath has not relented for all these things, and his hand is stretched out still. Verses 24 and 25 of Isaiah 5. This is the congregation of scoffers in Jerusalem. Of course, it totally isn't about the people that Isaiah was talking about. Oh, no, no, no. It's about the people that we don't like. Amalek is people we hate. The Kittim, oh, that's actually the Assyrians. They're people we hate. So God has told us to kill them. He's promised to kill them. And he's also talking about exile, but just for those traitors out in Jerusalem, you see. We're not going to read what the Bible says plainly. We're going to interpret it according to what we want it to say. We have left the territory of there was an attempt. We have entered the territory of we know better. And it takes maybe a 68 IQ to understand that what the Bible is saying has already come to pass here. Now it's just a naked agenda setting. Using the Bible to justify your own ends. Even when they're not mistranslating it, even when they're not monkeying with the text, they just can't help themselves. They have to add commentary to it to say that it's about stuff that it's not actually about. So we get to the next fragment here. This is concerning chapter 33, verses 15 through 18. Thus said the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, you shall be saved by returning and resting. Your strength shall be in silence and trust. But you would not. You said, No, we will flee upon horses and will ride on swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be speedy also. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain and like a signal on top of a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who wait for him. That's the text of Isaiah 30, verses 15 through 18, but how do they interpret it? This saying, referring to the last days, concerns the congregation of those who seek smooth things in Jerusalem, who despise the law and do not trust in God. As robbers lie in wait for a man, dot, 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 they have despised the words of the law. And then it just quotes here Isaiah 30, verses 19 and 20. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you shall weep no more at the sound of your crying. He will be gracious to you. He will answer you when he hears it. Although the Lord gives you bread of oppression and water of distress, your teacher shall be hidden no more, and your eyes shall see your teacher. It's verses 19 and 20. Now, if you actually read chapter 30 of Isaiah here, guess what it's about? It's about the Assyrian exile and invasion. How do we know that? Because verse 31 says, The voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria with his rod. He will strike them down. It is not about end time stuff. Isaiah gives us the proper timeline and context here in the very same stinking chapter. But the desire to have this passage apply to them in the end times expectations means that they are willing to reinterpret what the word Assyria means. They are willing to reinterpret every single little thing to make it apply to them because that's earnestly what they wanted. This isn't even eisegesis at this point. It's just saying that the Bible means what you want it to be. It is interpretation according to earnest, heartfelt desire rather than interpretation of what you want. Now, eisegesis, when you insert something into the text, 
can be that. It can absolutely be, I want this to be true, therefore I'm going to say this is what the Bible says. I'm going to put words in God's mouth. But here it goes above what your typical eisegete does, who usually goes by tradition or reason to add to the Bible. But all right, we have just a few more little commentaries here on Isaiah. This is from chapter 54, 11 and 12. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony. Interpreted this saying concerns, all Israel is like antimony surrounding the eye. And I will lay your foundations with sapphires. Interpreted, this concerns the priests and the people who laid the foundations of the council of the community. The congregation of his elect shall sparkle like sapphire among stones. And I will make all your pinnacles of a gate. Interpreted, this concerns the twelve chief priests who shall enlighten by judgment of the Urim and Thummim, which are absent from them like the sun with all its light and like the moon. And all your gates of carbuncles, interpreted, this concerns the chiefs of the tribes of Israel. Oh my goodness! Literally nothing in this text says that the council of the community is what Isaiah is getting at, but they've decided that it applies to them. There was an attempt to make an attempt to make an attempt. There was an attempt here to force the Bible to say what it doesn't say. There was an attempt, and it was an attempt and doing some really stupid, messed up stuff that mangles the word of God. Honestly, if they were alive today, I would just tell them you need to be ashamed of yourselves. And they would probably turn to a whole bunch of different pastors and theologians and stuff and say, why are you blaming us? Look at your people doing the same stinking thing, and ooh boy, howdy, would it burn. But that said, next week we are going to go over their other commentaries on Hosea and Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk, and we're going to see, well, them doing yet more of the same. At least I predict that to be the case. <laughs> it's not hard to assume. Anyway, with that, I love you all. Amen and amen. <laughs>